woke up this morning a little bit before four. Immediately I thought, it's Easter. It's Easter Day. Fifty years ago, that would have meant that there was a bunch of candy hidden around downstairs in our house and that a chocolate bunny was in my future. <laughs> Not one of those hollow ones either. The real solid chocolate bunny. My grandma always made sure we had one of those. You know, the kind that takes you at least a day to eat. <laughs> or if you're like my sister, it would last a Halloween. And then she'd stock up again until the Easter Bunny came. Do you remember the first time you bit into one of those hollow chocolate bunnies? What is this? What is even the point? All 50 years ago, I'd have been some excited about waking up on Easter Day. And I was excited to wake up on Easter Day today. But for reasons much more significant and meaningful than a bunch of candy, it's Easter. And he is risen. So as I laid there, not quite ready to get up, but knowing that I wasn't going back to sleep, my thoughts drifted to that first Easter morning. What must that have been like for the characters involved? I'm laying there thinking it's dark and, and there's a busy day ahead. And I'm guessing so were the first of Jesus' followers to wake up on that day but for very starkly different reasons. I'm going to worship, and I'm going to celebrate the defeat of death. And they're going to the cemetery and rub spices on a mangled corpse. You see, on Friday, their friend Jesus had been publicly executed. And as the Sabbath was about to start that evening, there wasn't time to properly prepare his body for burial. So he had been taken down from the cross on which he had died and placed in a borrowed tomb. A tomb, by the way, that was sealed by a stone so large that one of the first thoughts of those who knew they had work to do this Easter was, who will we get to roll this stone away for us? It was a chore that those few women didn't know that they were up for. But as it turns out, they didn't need to be worried about it. Because when the Sabbath was over, early on Sunday morning, these ladies went to the tomb where Jesus was laid. And when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. More than that, though, the tomb was empty, and Jesus was gone. And then two angels appeared, and now it's starting to get pretty weird. 
And they asked the women what must have seemed like an awfully odd question. Why are you seeking the living in a graveyard? Of course, they weren't seeking the living. They had come seeking the dead. They had come with their spices to anoint the dead. What are these angels talking about? And the angels proceeded to tell them what they were struggling to comprehend. He's not here. He has risen. Remember, they said, he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Jesus was killed. He was buried, and three days later, he rose to life. This is the shortest iteration of what is known as the gospel, a term that literally translates good news. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us this condensed version. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That Jesus was raised from the dead is a crucial part of the gospel message. And while there are many implications and many facets to be explored when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, this morning we're going to consider just two. That in the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated, and by the resurrection, Jesus is victorious. Our Father, we pause as we sit under your word, to ask you for the grace and courage to hear it, to ask you by your Spirit to unstop our ears and to soften our hearts, that we might receive implanted that which has all we need to be changed and conformed to you. Bless us, we pray, as we continue in worship. Amen. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. Jesus was killed by crucifixion. At the age of 33, he was hung on a Roman cross to die. If you were just hearing this now for the first time, just reading about this now, you would, like probably most reasonable people, probably conclude if Jesus was crucified, as awful a way to die as that is, he must have done something to deserve it, right? People are not just publicly punished by death for no reason. Why else would whole crowds cry out for his death if he hadn't done something wrong? Why would the Roman government sanction his death if he hadn't broken some sort of law? 
even the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, we find it again reiterated the New Testament. The book of Galatians says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Cursed of God. So it's not out of line, right, especially for those who don't know the story of Jesus in detail, to suspect that Jesus must have done something along the way of his earthly life to warrant the harsh, the brutal, the fatal treatment that he received. And that might not make his cruel end acceptable or right, but it would at least make it understandable, except this, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never, ever, ever did anything wrong or anything that warranted the condemnation and the punishment that he endured. If you are familiar with your Bible, you know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day looked long and hard to find some grounds to accuse him, but they kept coming up empty. To the very end, they were straining to find a charge that would stick, changing their mind, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, until they tried, they could find something. You remember Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, met with Jesus. He had to give approval for this execution to take place. He had to give the green light. And so he talked with the Lord, but he came out of his conversation with Jesus, and he said it three times, I find no fault in him. Both Pilate and Herod examined Jesus and concluded, Luke 23, verse 15, Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Later in the same chapter of Luke's Gospel, scripture that was read to us this morning, we come to the scene of Jesus hanging on his cross between two guilty and convicted thieves. No, we didn't hear this part of the story. We heard the next part. One says, if you have any superpowers, get us out of here. That's my translation. The other confronts his colleagues in crime. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even career criminal knows Jesus is blameless and doesn't deserve to die. And so did the Roman centurion who was assigned to this particular execution. We did read this. As Jesus hung on the cross around noontime, the sun failed. The sun failed because the light of the world is being extinguished. For three hours, the land is covered in darkness. And then finally, Jesus died. He commended his spirit into his father's hands. He stopped breathing. And the soldier positioned below him had a curious response. Luke tells us he praised God. Not because, not because he was glad that Jesus died, not at all, but because he all of a sudden understood that he was in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, the thing to do is give him glory. And he said, certainly, this man was innocent. Luke further tells us that the crowds who'd gathered to watch this spectacle departed to their homes, beating their breasts and wailing. And that's because they really didn't know what they were doing when they screamed for Christ's death. They really didn't know who he was when they rejected him altogether and 
Beloved, let me just say today, if you have rejected Jesus, I hope you've done your homework. I hope you're not just making up your mind based on what somebody told you sometime or some bad experience you had in some whacked out church. What? There's lots of whacked out churches. Look at these people who acted without knowing. And look what they felt when they realized that they had rejected Jesus. Their hearts are pierced with guilt. They know they've been party to a grave wrong. Jesus was innocent. He was undeserving of death. And everyone, including the conspirators who used the crowd and manipulated Pontius Pilate to have him killed, everyone knew it. Which raises the question, if he was sinless, if he was perfect, if he was guiltless, never having done anything wrong to warrant the wages of sin, which is death, why did Jesus die on that cross? And as it happened, Jesus did not die on the cross as a damned man because of anything that he had done. But he died there, willfully assuming in himself the misdeeds others had done and would do. He died bearing the sins of the people of the world. Or if I might bring this a little closer to home, he died paying the price for your sin. And he died paying the price for mine. You see, unlike Jesus, none of us is sinless, none of us is perfect, none of us is without guilt. I know that comes as a newsflash to some of you, but not to most. We all fall short of God's glory. And our best attempts at righteousness, according to the prophet Isaiah, are as filthy rags. And if that seems harsh, it might be because the standard we often use when calculating our goodness or our worthiness for God's heaven is often a standard of comparison. We believe we aren't that bad mostly because we know someone who's worse. We reason that our good deeds probably hopefully outweigh our bad ones. And that should be enough maybe to get us through the pearly gates. But you know the standard God uses isn't, isn't relative. It's objective. And it is perfection. So while we may certainly have and do some good in this world, we are not perfect. And no one in his or her natural, carnal state is completely holy. Only Jesus was. And that's why the death of Christ is spoken of in terms of sacrifice and atonement. Those are words whose meaning can escape modern ears, but they, these ideas were central to Jewish, the Jewish understanding of how we relate to God. You see, when sins were committed... And back then, sins were committed just the same way they are now, early and often. God established a system of atoning for them. And his point, which wasn't to be missed, was that all sin incurs a debt to God. And a price has to be paid for that sin. And in the Jewish sacrificial system, that price for sin was transferred to an animal. 
It was imparted to that animal which was killed. And this isn't a, a mystical process. It wasn't a magical transference of guilt. It's an expression of faith. What's happening there with the sacrifice is the individual, the nation, is, is confessing, I have done wrong, and my wrongdoing deserves the punishment of death. And I acknowledge that. And in my place, another is sacrificed to pay my debt that I might be considered clean and forgiven. Friend, Jesus came into the world to be the sacrifice of all sacrifices for the sins of those who will put their faith in him. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation, a word that means atonement or appeasement for our sins. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He died on the cross in the stead of sinful people. He took our sins on his shoulders. He bore a punishment. We, but not he, deserved. And that's why he's called the Lamb of God. He came to be the sacrificial lamb. He came, as we have seen recently in our time spent in Luke's Gospel, to seek and to save the lost. He came, truly, to do what he said and what Mark records in his gospel, to give his life a ransom for many. He came to do something about our universal sin problem. He took that sin and exchanged it for his righteousness. To understand that on the cross, he bore our imperfection in order that his perfection might then be attributed to us. That's what he's doing on the cross. That's why he's dying on the cross. And the sacrifice of his sinless life on behalf of sinful people was enough. It was sufficient. It was acceptable to God. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he, he was not just talking about the end of his earthly existence, but he's talking about he has accomplished what he came to do. As Charles Wesley penned it in his famous Easter hymn, love's redeeming work is done. Done. The mission to rescue creation from the grip of sin was fulfilled. And only then, only then did Jesus breathe his last. And God put his stamp of approval on what his son had done, on Christ's sacrifice. He accepts it and he vindicates his son by raising him from the dead. Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And he did, in fact, do what he said he had come to do. So in the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. And by the resurrection, Jesus is victorious. Most everyone who professes any kind of faith is aware of a cosmic battle that rages around us. This battle between good and evil. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. He wants us to remember, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
think through that, brothers and sisters. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I know we always want to personify our conflict. I know we always want to think that if this person would just change and that one would stop talking and this one would straighten up. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle that we're always engaged in. And this battle has been ongoing since Satan's rebellion and fall, showing up at the very start of creation in the Garden of Eden, when the tempter sadly gains the upper hand and leads Adam and Eve to follow him and not our God. But it was in that same garden where the first promise of Jesus as our victor over Satan was made. Genesis 3.15, God promises Eve that from woman one would be born who would in fact suffer a strike on his heel, that is the bite of the serpent. He would suffer that. That is the suffering and the death that Jesus went through. But it would not be a finally fatal bite. And this one would himself crush the serpent's head. That is, he will deal the death blow to Satan. And this one is God's own Son, Jesus, who will be victorious over creation's enemy. And as the earthly story of Jesus plays out, Satan entered one of his disciples named Judas, right? And Judas, under the influence of Satan, betrayed the location of Jesus so that he could be apprehended under the cover of darkness and handed over to be crucified. You see, it was through Christ's death that Satan and his allies thought they would be able to defeat Jesus. You remember the jealous man who was king at the time of Jesus' birth had sought to kill the Lord when he was just an infant. Oh, go, go find him and bring him to me. I want to worship him. You want to kill him. In the temptation that preceded Jesus' earthly ministry, the devil tried to get him to jump off a tall building. Right? One way to get rid of an enemy, one way to get rid of a threat, is to kill it. And that's what Satan's conspiring to do. But ironically, though not coincidentally, it was through the death of Jesus, through the cross of crucifixion, that Satan is defeated. What Philip Ryken rightly described as the most evil deed ever committed on this planet turned out to be, in God's providence and unsearchable wisdom, the greatest thing that ever happened on this planet. For the enemies of sin, death, separation from our Creator, that all had their start in the Garden of Eden and have infected us all, everyone, were resolved in Christ at Calvary and paid for completely. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We were guilty. We were guilty. The legal demands are there, present, real. But this he set aside, Paul said, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in 
him. We think about that passage in Scripture in Colossians, this idea of nailing something to the cross. Maybe, maybe we envision something like, like taking a list, you know, and tacking it. Something like Martin Luther's tacking up the 95 theses, right, on the, on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. Some communicators say Paul's language here refers to an ancient practice of nailing the written evidence of a canceled debt in a public place as a notice to all that the creditor had no more claim on the debtor. Think about that. That's a pretty powerful image when you think about it. Friend, I want you to to think what it would look like for you to make a list of all your sins. All the sins you have ever committed, and obviously you can only list the ones you know about. So you probably want to double the list. Compile that list. Have that list in your mind. Now think about going and nailing that list to the cross. You know what my first thought was? That's a big cross if it's going to hold my sin. That's a pretty big cross. Yeah, because the magnitude of the record of our sin debt is great. But the mercy of God is greater still. Amen? Our list is nailed to the cross in the person who is hanging on the cross. All of our wrongs, all of our rebellious acts, nailed to the cross in Jesus, who carries them there himself to these wooden beams and silences their demands with perfect payment, canceling the record of sin's debt for those who believe in him. And what that means, Christian, is when the devil comes calling, and he wants you to pay eternally for your transgressions, he has no hold over you. No hold. When he tempts you to despair for your wrongdoing, and he fills your mind and he fills your heart with regret for the things that you have done and the things that you have undone, left undone, his Accusations are powerless. What that means, if you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus, is that if you will receive what Christ has done for you, your sins will be forgiven. They will be blotted out. They will be remembered no more. They will not be brought against you ever. Romans 10, 9 promises this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus paid it all. We sing it as a beautiful song. Jesus paid it all. 
The crimson stain of sin is washed white as snow by the blood of the Lamb that flows down Calvary's cross. He, God, disarmed the forces of evil and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Oh, in the resurrection, Jesus is victorious. How do you know, Pastor? Because he's alive! Because <laughs> he stepped out of the grave. Because all kinds of people saw him. Because it's true. In dying, he paid the wages of sin. And in rising, listen, he broke death's grip. So you do not need to be afraid of death. Acts 2.24 says of Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know this, right? No one else in all of human history has ever been raised from death not to die again. But there's all kinds of stories of people who've been resuscitated. Praise God, it happens. But everybody who's been resuscitated, even Lazarus, think about that. Right? Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Guess what? You're going to have to go through that again, bro. <laughs> Jesus is the only one to have gone into death and come out alive, never to return. <laughs> By the resurrection, Christ is victorious over death. And here's how this translates personally. Here's how this is more than just a story, an extraordinary story of something that happened so long ago. Here is how this really does have to do with you and me. Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's triumph is our triumph. He was raised, the Apostle Paul writes, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, the first fruits, right? We're not, we're not agricultural people here. We don't talk this way. But this first fruits, it means the beginning, okay? The sample, the sign, and the pledge of what is to follow. Got it? The sample, the sign, and the pledge of what is to follow. The first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Put simply, Victory over death is assured to all who put their trust in Jesus and all who belong to him. We will be raised, Christian, you know you will be raised because he was raised. Don Carson, D.A. Carson, you might know him as that, one of the more brilliant scholars and theologians of our day, also happens to be a very humble man. I stood beside him at the Gospel Coalition uh, Conference in Indianapolis several years ago. We were both in line to register to receive our name badges. Connors, Carson, you know. We were in the C lines. So me, an attendee, and he, the founder and president 
of the organization hosting the conference. Now, if anyone doesn't need a name tag in that venue, or if anyone could have had one of his people pick up his name tag, it would have been D.A. Carson. But that's not who he is. He really is humble. He really is unassuming. He's also very bold and straightforward when it comes to explaining the Bible. And on this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, he notes this. He says, Paul argues that if Christ rose from the dead in a resurrection body, which, however strange in some ways and remarkable it was, could be touched and handled, could be spoken to, could be seen, and could actually eat human food, then when we, who are finally resurrected on the last day, come into that final state, we will have resurrection bodies like his resurrection body. That is our destination. So his resurrection is the first fruit of what is often called a general resurrection at the end of the age. All human beings will be resurrected, whether to life or to condemnation, because we are essentially embodied people. And with this comes also a vision of life and existence beyond this life. We should not think, he says, that Christianity merely sorts out some problems in our lives here. Rather, the ultimate goal is beyond this life. When we get older and more hairs fall out and arthritis kicks in or we slink away into dementia, suddenly resurrection existence begins to look very good indeed. Because our hope is not to survive to 70 or 80 or even 90. Our hope, finally, is a body like Christ's resurrection body. And his is the first fruit. Ours has been secured by him. And we are coming along behind him to join him in resurrection existence. Full-bodied resurrection existence in the new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4, the great resurrection chapter, ends with the words, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, I pray that you are encouraged today by the hope of the eternal life, which is to come because of what Jesus has done. We started with simple gospel, so let's end on the same note. With perhaps the Bible's most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And have you received this gift, this gift of everlasting life, this gift of God that God extends to you? Humorist Evan Easer once said, Easter is the only time when it's perfectly safe to put all your eggs in one basket. Naturally, if you haven't done that, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, 
First, let me just challenge you in the nicest way, asking you, what is your plan? What is your alternative if it's not Jesus? But then let me encourage you this way. If you haven't put your true faith and trust in Jesus, this is a perfect day to do it. This is the perfect day. Well, Pastor, how do I do that? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> Bow your heads with me, would you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and ask you, if you're thinking about making a commitment to Jesus today, if all of a sudden you're like those ladies who had heard the truth that Jesus has spoken, but then, it, when it, then when it came to you at the right time, you remembered? I'm going to read this prayer, and I'm going to invite you in your heart, in your mind, to sort of repeat it after me. You don't have to repeat it out loud or anything like that, because it's, not, it's never about the prayer, okay? It's not about a formula. It's not about the recitation of a prayer. It's about the faith that comes behind the prayer. But if God is calling you today to a life of faith, to a relationship with him, then, then repeat this prayer in your heart, in your mind, and pray it to the Lord. Lord, I admit I am a sinner, and there is nothing I can do to save myself. I know I cannot forgive my own sin or work my way to heaven. I need and want your forgiveness. Cleanse me, Lord, and make me your child. Jesus, I believe you bore my sin when you died on the cross. I believe you did all that will ever be necessary for me to stand in your holy presence. I believe you were raised from the dead as a guarantee of my own resurrection. I believe in and I want your gift of eternal life. By faith I receive you as a Son of God and as Savior and Lord of my life. From now on, help me to trust you. Help me to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. If you prayed that prayer to the Lord today, then please come talk to, to, to someone about it or talk to somebody that you might have come to worship with about it, to, uh, another believer who can help you on this journey. We would like to pray with you. We would like to talk with you about this decision and what it means. In a few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break here. I'm going to ask the elders if they would come forward as we have been doing over the last several weeks. So if the elders can make their way down here. Um, if you want to talk with one of the elders about Jesus, if you, want to, if you have something that you want to pray about today, that's what we're here for. We're here for you. Uh, come on down, talk with us, let's pray. And, uh, and, then, and then after a while, we're going to 
we're going to make our way up to the sanctuary. We're actually going to continue to worship. So if you're interested in joining us for worship and song, that's just out the exit sign here and to the right. It'll be a few minutes before we get up there because we certainly want to talk and pray with people. But that's where we're headed, so uh, don't, don't just fly out of here if you don't want to. If you're ready to continue worshiping, we'd love to have you do that. Listen, friend, if you have, haven't put your true faith and trust in Jesus, then today is the perfect day to do it. And if you have already done it, how many of you have already done that? Amen. <laughs> then today is the perfect day for you to praise God for the promise of the everlasting life that is yours through your Savior, Jesus. The Lord bless you. Happy Easter. Anybody wants to come talk, come talk. We'll be up there in a little while to sing.